Missouri's 2018 fiscal budget is on Governor Eric Greitens' desk. But as House Budget Committee Chairman Scott Fitzpatrick can attest, creating the document wasn't exactly easy. The Shell Knob Republican joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking to break down the budget process. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. I am talking right now in St. Louis, Missouri. My colleague Joe Manis is driving to Jefferson City for the final week of the legislative session. I will be there on Tuesday. So we have, through the magic of radio, uh, the Missouri House's Budget Committee Chairman, and his name is? Scott Fitzpatrick. And uh, just remind our listeners your district number and which counties you encompass uh, yeah, or, or represent. I'm from the 158th district, and that encompasses Barry County and a little bit of Lawrence and Stone Counties, which is down in the southwest corner of the state and uh, has part of a good, good chunk of Table Rock Lake in it. So the virtue, or by virtue of the fact that you're even talking with me right now, it means that the Missouri budget has been sent to Governor Eric Greitens. As I'm sure you know, there was some, I guess, speculation or doubt that it was going to get finished on time. I guess a a simple question first, are are you surprised that it was able to get done before the Friday deadline, especially after the governor sent the budget to the legislature later than possible? Well, I don't don't think I'm surprised. I think that... uh... I think like if if you're a betting person, like the odds are always against not getting the budget done. Doesn't usually doesn't usually happen. I mean, I think the uh, the will to get things done, especially the budget, uh, since it's the one thing we have to do constitutionally, is is usually pretty pretty large. So we we got it done, and you know we knew pretty early on that the governor was going to be at the end of the constitutional time frame that he had allowed uh, to give us his budget, and uh, Senator Brown and I met very early on in the process and laid out a schedule of, you know, what, what the process was going to look like and had a plan to, uh, get it done. That being said, obviously, you know, things get complicated, uh, during the, uh, during this process and things don't always go according to plan, but realistically we, we got it done and on the time frame that we anticipated. So, uh, we, you know, that being said, we only 19 hours to spare, but it got done. Um, I, from talking with you before the legislative session started this year, I got the sense this is one of the most difficult budget periods that you've ever experienced in your five years in the legislature. Um, explain kind of why this was more challenging than than usual and kind of how that might have exacerbated some of the tensions within the House, between the House and the Senate, between Republicans, just tensions galore, essentially. Yeah, well, you know, anytime that there's a Anytime there's a bad budget year, I mean, it, it makes things more difficult because the only way to deal with that is to cut. And, you know, unfortunately, higher education took a took a brunt of a lot of that, uh, uh, a lot of that, uh, that cut that we had to do uh, from last year's position. But the reason we got into this situation is 
there's really kind of three factors. Uh, one is that Medicaid, you know, entitlement spending is is growing and it's really hard for us to control. Uh, and in addition to that, we missed the consensus revenue estimate last year by a couple of percent, which meant we were starting the year out with about $200 million less in the bank than we had anticipated. And that, that causes a problem as well. And when you combine those two things with the third factor, and that is that we relied on quite a bit of one-time uh, funding in last year's budget in order to balance it. So we had like some settlement income that we used to plug into the Medicaid budget so that we were able to do some other things elsewhere in the budget. And this year when we looked at the budget, that money was gone, but the expense was still there. So we had to come up with general revenue to put in the place of those one-time funds. And that was to the tune of, I want to say 120 or $30 million of money that we had last year for various reasons that we don't have this year. Uh, and we had to figure out how to how to deal with that as well. So those three things combined made it a year where we had to cut over $500 million of things that were in the budget last year out in order to make room for the growth in Medicaid. Now, this is a question I've been asking a lot of legislators because I wasn't surprised that higher education got cut because since higher education is funded primarily with general revenue, which is this fungible pot of money that fluctuates depending on how good or bad the economy is, uh, there really there really weren't that many things you can cut when there is a budgetary hole. So my, my question that I've been asking, I guess, people who are on the budget committee and who are not in the budget committee is does this situation where higher education institutions got about a 6 or 7% cut sort of prompt a conversation about whether higher education institutions should even be funded with general revenue, whether there maybe should be a more direct funding source, whether it be through an increased tax or a redirected fee or something that doesn't make sure that higher education institutions are kind of at the whims of the economy or, or bad budgetary cycles? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think... That, that is one way to look at the situation. I think another way to look at it is, do we have too many higher education institutions in the state? Uh, I think that, that that is something we could, we should consider as well. I think we have 13 four-year institutions and probably about the same number of two years. We have you know, 25 or 30 public higher education institutions in the state, which is quite a few. And I think it makes it more difficult for each one of those to survive. Uh, but the other thing we have to realize, we spend... Uh, you know, between 900, 900 million and a billion dollars on higher education and uh, in, in general revenue, that is. And so we are still committing a good chunk of our budget uh, to that. I think that everybody here, well, maybe not everybody, I think the majority of the people here would like to see that number increase over time. But, you know, when we're competing with things that we can't not pay, like Medicaid, it makes it difficult. So I think that you know, a direct or a you know direct funding source or a new tax for higher education. You know, you know, I think you know the political realities of the General Assembly as well as the constitutional limitations that we have uh, for raising taxes in this state. And I think the only realistic way to accomplish that would be by going to a vote of the people, and the people have shown that they're not super willing to raise taxes for very many reasons. And I think it would be a pretty tough road to get a tax specifically specifically for higher education. Before we go into some of the other, I guess, more controversial parts of the budget, one thing that the House and the Senate found consensus on was fully funding the K-12 foundation formula. Now, could you explain why you think that would be a good thing 
for school districts across the state? Because that's been something that I think a lot of people have wanted to do for years, but haven't been successful, I would assume, due to limited financial resources to actually fund the, the formula at its you know fully funded rate. Yeah, well, I think one thing is that the way the formula is written, uh, when it is not fully funded, it distorts the funding the way that the formula is intended to work. So there's school districts, uh, for instance, we have hold harmless school districts. So they get, and a hold, a hold harmless district is a district that's going to get the same amount of money uh, per kid. Uh, or There's two kinds of hold harmless districts, the same amount of money per kid and the same amount of money for the whole school per year, regardless of, of what we put into the formula. So... And that, that is because those are the schools that would have otherwise, under the new formula that was adopted in 2005, they would have lost money under that. And so the only way to get enough people to buy into it would be like, well, you know, you, you guys who were going to lose money will keep you at least at the level you're at right now. And uh, so when you have a shortfall in the formula, that shortfall is becomes the burden of all the districts who are not hold harmless. And so, you know, I think that's one thing is that the, the, the districts that do rely on the formula – aren't going to be bearing the brunt all on their own of shortfalls in that funding. And I think that's a good thing. Another thing that it does is that, you know, House Bill 1689 from a couple of years ago uh, that we passed allows districts to start counting uh, up to 4% of their free and reduced lunch population uh, for early childhood education and their average daily attendance numbers, meaning that the number of kids that they can claim for their formula payment if they are operating an early childhood education program uh, is allowed to go up so they can begin getting reimbursed for early childhood education, which I think a lot of people agree is an important uh, important part to the educational process. So I think the, the aspect of the budget that I think garnered the most controversy was, was trying to figure out a way to reduce a proposed cut to in-home care service for low-income elderly people. First of all, am I, am I describing that correctly? I want to make sure that I'm actually describing the situation as accurately as possible. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, basically in our home and community-based services and nursing home programs, we have to set a threshold for who qualifies for those services, not just based on income, but based on their level of need. Uh, And we call it the level of care requirement. So there's a kind of a matrix that talks about different uh, aspects of, of one's life and how uh, able or unable they are to perform certain tasks in those aspects of their lives. And right now, uh, you have to score on that. It goes in increments of three in each category, and you have to score 21 points on that assessment to be eligible to receive home and community-based and or nursing home services. The governor's original budget proposal raised that by basically two steps, or six points, to 27 points. And we heard a lot of concern about that from the, uh, you know, from from other legislators as well as people in in uh, the communities. And so what we did in the House was we passed a bill, House Committee Bill 3, which would repeal the renter's portion of the property tax credit, uh, which would save about $56.3 million per year. And it would put that money into what's called the Senior Services Protection Fund. And then in the budget, we uh, appropriated money from that fund uh, to restore the services the governor had initially recommended we uh, we reduce to the people that fell in that 21-point to 27-point gap. 
Does that and, make sense? Yeah, that, that that does make sense. And and to make a long story short, after some negotiations between the House and the Senate, I I think that there was some consensus reached to lower the amount of people that would would lose coverage under under the budget, though not completely. I think about eight thousand would would lose coverage under the other under the budget that was sent to Greitens. Is that correct? Well, yeah. So, so basically, the way that it worked, we we in the House we provided a path by passage through the House of House Committee Bill Three, the Renters Property Tax Credit Repeal. We we had provided a path to get back to twenty one points, which is what the current level of care requirement is. The Senate's budget uh, did not do that. It it, it provided a path to twenty four points, which is basically halfway between the governor's original position and the House position. And they did that with general revenue because they were at that point not counting on the uh, property tax credit uh, renters portion of that to, to be repealed. So when we got to conference, what we agreed to do, we agreed to was that we agreed to take the Senate's position on going back to 24 points. So basically meeting in the middle on uh, on the points, which was the best possible outcome under the Senate budget. So if we'd have just taken the Senate position, period, you know, we'd have been moving on. We, this discussion would probably probably be unnecessary uh, because we would be at 24 points and there would be no path to get to 21 points. But what we agreed to do is go to 24 points using funding we knew we had, which was general revenue, and to provide the opportunity to get back to 21 points uh, if the Senate took up and passed House Committee, House Committee Bill 3. And uh, that's the way the budget ended up ended up passing. So in the waning hours of the, the Thursday session, and I don't even know if it was the Friday morning session, but I, I'm guessing it was Thursday evening, the Senate ended up passing another bill that's separate from the budget that, and, and I'm again, I'm paraphrasing here, would take fund balances from a number of, of funds throughout state government and use that to cover the, the gap between 24 points and 21 points. And this is how State Representative Deb Lavender, a Democrat from Kirkwood, kind of explained the situation a little bit further. I'm going to play a clip right now. I had attempted to find fund balances to make up that difference so we didn't have to take the money from our seniors. And that was not successfully passed on the House floor. Last night in the Senate, they took that idea and they enhanced it. So they took it and asked the uh, Department of uh, Administration, the OA department, to go through these funds and do an equitable sweep. That's the word that we can sweep these funds. So how, how, how much of a chance do you think that idea is going to have passing the House? I mean, it, it, it's something that the Senate approved with a bipartisan majority, but it doesn't seem like if, it, if, that, if that idea had traction in the House, it probably would have been adopted in the budget to begin with. So it makes me wonder if, if that plan has any chance of passing in the last week. Uh, well, I'm never going to say never that nothing ha- that something has no chance of passing regardless of what it is. What I will say is that the Senate's plan has several problems, in my opinion. Um, one, those sweeps would require an appropriation. Um, so a- any transfer of funds from one place to another in the budget is it requires an appropriation, and that's been the practice for a very long time. Uh, the way the state's accounting and budgeting system is set up is that when we move money from one fund to another, there is a place, uh, there's an appropriation associated with that, and there's a place in the state's accounting system where when that transfer is to occur, uh, 
that transfer has to be entered in the accounting system against an appropriation. And the fact that those appropriations don't exist is problematic, in my opinion, for the Senate plan. So there is that. Um, in addition to that, you know, to, to Representative Lavender's credit, she did identify funds that, in my opinion, and I think that most people would agree, were egregiously overbalanced. Okay, I mean, there were funds that, and most of them are in the, you know, professional licensing uh, space. And, you know, I mean, those are the ones that have a perpetually ongoing balance that is most likely far in excess of what they need in order to operate or, or to serve the function that they are supposed to serve under statute. Unfortunately, during the process of amending the their base their their replacement for House Committee Bill Three, the Senate on Thursday exempted a good portion of those funds from the sweep. So the ones that Representative Lavender had identified through the appropriations process and had attempted to uh, take money from, uh, a lot of those were not included in the Senate's version of the bill. And so the ones that are left are, are ones that are probably pretty problematic to sweep for one reason or another. For instance, you know, we have federal Medicaid funds that um, you know, if we took money from, you know, we're basically, it would be like stealing federal money for a purpose not related to, I mean, we'd be using that as match for additional federal funds, which you can't really do. Uh, MoDOT has already contacted my office concerned that their constitutional funds are included uh, in the fund sweep bill uh, so that the road fund could be affected. The Department of Corrections has contacted me concerned that the uh, uh, inmates canteen fund could be affected. And these are things that all would re we, we rely on them for operating purposes in the budget already. So if you begin to take balances from those funds now, then we would they would not have fund balance in them next year, excuse me, when we would need those uh, in order to, uh, to, to, to pass next year's budget. And what happens when you do that is that GR, general revenue, would have to pick up the slack where those funds didn't have balance in order to uh, serve their purpose. And so really what it amounts to, in my opinion, is the fund sweep proposal, which the reason we rejected it in the House was that it was a one-time solution to an ongoing problem. So if we, if we take the money from those funds this year, that money will be gone next year. But the, uh, the, the things that we're spending those money, that money on will still need to be funded next year. And so we'll find ourselves back in the exact same position in one year that we find ourselves in right now. Uh, before we look forward to the last uh, few days of the legislative session, is there anything about this budget process that occurred over the last few months that you think uh, could provide some instruction for future budget processes to improve upon? In, in other words, is there anything you think legislators could do differently to make the, the entire crafting of a budget go more smoothly, or did it basically go as smoothly as it possibly could? Well, you know, I think that, uh, I, you know, we just passed the thing on Thursday. I haven't had a ton of time to reflect on the process yet. It's something I certainly plan to do. Um, I would say that, you know, the, t the tight time frame, you know, made things certainly more difficult if, uh, you know, if the executive branch is able to get us the budget a little bit earlier next year, we'd certainly... Uh, that their version of the budget, I should say, we would certainly appreciate that, and uh, you know, and, and we would use that time, that extra time that we have, uh, wisely, in my opinion. Um, but you know, I think that uh, 
you know, w- when we get done with session, we'll probably I'll be talking to some of the subcommittee chairs and other members of the budget committee about the process and and asking them for input on what they think could have could have done we could have done differently or made made better for for the process because that that is one thing that I wanted to make sure that we did. I didn't want to rush, and uh, I wanted to make sure that people had time to ask questions. A lot of times in the past, there's been pressure during the process to stop asking questions because people it's getting late people don't want to don't want to stay there till one in the morning listening to questions about medicaid or and you know or some other thing and so i tried to change that culture a little bit on the budget committee this year to make sure that everybody knew that if they had a question they didn't need to be shy about asking it and uh, i think that if we had a little bit more time next year that you know that that process could even be a little bit better So let's look ahead to the next few days. Um, I think there's been a lot of attention over the last few weeks on kind of the GOP infighting in the Missouri Senate. And I think that that uh, entire focus has kind of also showcased how little Republican infighting there's been in the Missouri House. Now, granted, I'm not in Jefferson City on a day-to-day basis. For all I know, the 116-member Republican caucus could be at each other's throats on a daily basis, and we don't know about it. But can you kind of give me a sense on how the relative Republican unity in the House on, on many of the big issues is helping things or maybe not helping things move along in the legislative process, and especially how it's going to affect getting some big ticket items through in the last few few days of session? Yeah, well, I think that a few things. Uh, the, the House has benefited in my opinion from from strong leadership and a lot of the leadership positions recently uh speaker richardson you know has been a an outstanding speaker in my opinion and it's been he you know he, he and i have worked really well together but i think also and you know as you know more importantly on other legislation outside the budget um you know he and representative searpoy have worked well together uh i think that having that uh Having that good relationship and working relationship between the majority leader and the speaker, and really all of leadership, including you know the but you know the budget process and uh, you know the speaker pro tem, we, we really everybody is in leadership is uh, working well together, and I think that, that translates well to the rest of our caucus in in the house. Um, I think that what you've seen a lot in the past is that. Well, n- number one, I mean, we we've had I think a a pretty historic session with right to work passing early on. We've we've got we got a statewide uh, TNC or you know uh, tr- you know ride sharing bill passed. Uh, there's been some some tort reform passed. I mean we've had a we've had a good session, and I think that uh, you know in discussions amongst ourselves we all feel pretty confident in that. Now looking across the uh, the rotunda to the other side, um, there are some important bills that are sitting on the calendar in the Senate. And I can tell you that do we in the House want to see the Senate uh, pass some of those bills? Absolutely. Um, But one thing that's been a practice in the past is the Senate has made it a habit uh, of putting a lot of amendments on House bills and sending them over in the last week and and telling the bill handlers in the House, you know, don't send send this bill back because if you send it back, it's dead. There's no way we're going to have time to, to go back to it. And I think that, you know, the House is probably 
going to be less inclined to just take up House bills with, that get loaded up with Senate amendments and pass them. Um, I think that we want to make sure that we're passing good legislation um, and not not taking things uh, on bills that uh, that we shouldn't be taking on bills. So I think that 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 will be an interesting thing to watch play out in the final week. Uh, but the like like I said, the Senate has several things on the calendar that hopefully they'll be able to get done, and the House has a few things uh, and you know, on our side that hopefully we'll be able to get done. Uh, you know, we'll we'll look at that uh, in the next. Uh, couple days and see what happens. Two things that come to mind where it's Senate bills that are in the House's uh, legislative uh, ballywick, so to speak. One is a bill that would essentially make it harder to successfully sue for employment discrimination. The other is kind of a multifaceted education bill, which includes, I believe, changes to the school transfer law and setting up a relatively limited but still groundbreaking tax credit program that would allow for scholarships to go to private schools, potentially. Are those going to be the two bills you think that are going to take up the most amount of time in the next few days? And and they're both bills not without controversy. How do you think they're going to fare in, in the House, especially if there's some defections among your Republican colleagues on them? Yeah, well, I think that... Uh... You know, Senate Bill Forty Three is the is Senator Romine's bill about uh, uh, about basically employment litigation, and you know, I I really don't know what's going to happen with that bill. I think that um, there is some you know there, there's some disagreement as there is with a lot of things. Uh, you know, in our caucus, I think that it will come up for a vote a vote this week. The question is, does the bill get amended? And if it does get amended, you know. That, that probably does mean on a bill like that, it probably does mean that the bill uh, won't pass. Um, and so I think that that'll be an interesting one to watch. I do think that in some way, shape, or form, there will be a vote on that this week. Um, on and and you know, and I just I just don't know what the outcome of that's going to be. On Senate Bill three thirteen, the uh, ESA bill, uh, I think you're I think yeah, it started out as a as a as a basically a, an education savings account. Uh, tax credit type bill for uh, basically kids with disabilities. I think uh, children of veterans and and uh, maybe a couple of other other categories of kids. And it got several amendments added to it uh, on the floor in the Senate. The it, it moved out of the General Laws Committee in the House unamended. And so I think right now it's sitting in uh, in the Rules Committee, the Representative Rhodes chairs, and it will be kind of up to him. At this point, I think they're going to have a hearing on it today, but I don't know that it's going to get voted out of that committee today. So it's going to be interesting to see if that bill is able to make it out of that committee. And then if it does, I think probably what's most likely going to happen on that would be that the bill would be changed in some way, shape, or form. I think some people have concerns with the transfer language that was added uh, and some of the things that the transfer language does. Uh, So I think that there's a chance that we go back to more along the lines of the transfer language that was in the uh, uh, in the uh, bill that we passed a couple of years ago uh, that representative I think it was representative Wood handled and uh, and then you know we keep the uh, the education savings account piece and and see if the Senate can uh, can can take that up and pass it but that's still I mean that's an awful lot of predicting I'm doing right there and I'm not 100 percent sure how accurate I am on all that well if you're inaccurate on that um, you you're we can I can make sure to let the Twitter account old takes expose know about it so you'll be mercilessly <laughs> shamed throughout Twitter yeah it's on the inter- 
there forever. So yeah. It's like I said on the, when we were in the uh, we started live streaming the budget committee hearings this year for the first time ever. We're the only committee I believe that live streams our uh, our hearings and, and and archives them on the House website. And I always tried to start every committee hearing by reminding everybody that you are live on the internet and whatever you say will be there forever. Absolutely. So. Well, I, I do want to touch on the ethics-related push because at the beginning of the legislative session, the House passed a, a pretty extensive lobbyist uh, gift restriction bill. I think it was the first thing the House passed. It, it is getting really bogged down in the Missouri Senate for various reasons. One of the reasons, although I don't think it's the only reason, is because a number of senators want um, a, a basically an amendment attached that would reveal the donation sources of politically active nonprofits, such as the one started by allies of Governor Greitens called A New Missouri. This is a clip of Senator Rob Schaff talking about basically his proposal to do just that. You know, he could do a few things to prove to the people of Missouri that he's not subject to the allure of corruption. He could say, I'm going to go to the White House and not use dark money and prove that it can be done. And and he will go farther and faster doing that than if he clings to, you know, to using this dark money. So that he was talking, uh, Senator Schaff was talking about Governor Greitens right there. I guess I have a two-part question for you. How frustrated are members of the House that the Senate is not just passing the lobbyist restriction bill that I mentioned on the outset? And what do you make of the idea of revealing the the sources of politically active nonprofits uh, like Senators Schaff and other senators want to do? Well, I think that the House would really love to see some some kind of ethics reform come out of the Senate. And I think the reason that we split, I mean, we, we tried to put each issue in its own bill because we knew that there were going to be, you know, there's going to be pushback on certain certain proposals and we wanted to take whatever we could get if that was a gift ban, uh, you know, then, and I think that's been the kind of the highlight of the, of the, the ethics package the last two years or what we've tried for the most and the Senate has had a hard time getting that to us. But as far as the, uh, you know, the, the, the dark money part goes, I, listen, I am, I, I am, in agreement with Senator Schaff that I think that it does do a lot to create distrust for the public uh, when we don't know who is funding uh, political activities. And I think that, you know, the problem isn't with the people who are given $50 to the National Federation of Independent Businesses and things like that. I think we all know what the problem is, and it's the problem. The problem is when you have, you know, a person or persons who are giving you know, six-figure, seven-figure uh, sums to organizations that have a pretty substantial impact on the political process and not knowing what the motivations of those people are. And so I would, I think, in, I want to say that in theory, and I haven't read, I haven't read specifically what Senator Schaff's uh, bill does, but I think in theory I would be supportive of uh, there being a requirement that politically active nonprofits uh, disclose their donors at some level. Um, it is one of those issues that it you can get out into the weeds on very quickly. Um, and the problem then becomes, you know, because it's like for everything you do to try to make the problem better, there's sometimes a, uh, you know, a, an alternative outcome that makes things worse. And I think that 
Amendment 2, one of the things that I think this you know, new Missouri group would be entirely unnecessary had Amendment 2 not passed, right? So I think that's one of the downsides of having passed limits in Missouri is that under the pre- prior to Amendment 2 passing, uh, those those folks could have all given to a uh, that you know an unlimited amount of money to a, a candidate or campaign committee that would then have to turn around and disclose uh, disclose where that money came from and I think that that transparency is 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 better than you know the way we've got it set up right now yeah because at the end yeah at the end of the day you're not going to stop money from being in politics. Yeah, what what I was going to say was, and I'm not saying that you're making this argument, and you weren't in the House in 2008, but I I, I I followed the passage of getting rid of campaign donation limits very closely in 2008. And the main argument among the primarily Republicans, though there were some Democrats who voted for it too, was that limits create an untransparent system. Getting rid of the limits will make it easier for people to know where money is coming from. And then during this this debate over the 501c4s, you saw a lot of conservative activists and conservative political consultants saying, well, no, donors should have the right to donate anonymously because they're getting attacked when it, they're, it's revealed that they're donating to some of these groups. And I, I understand that argument, but I just don't understand how you can argue for transparency on one hand and then argue that the donors should be able to hide themselves. It seems like you you can't make both arguments. And I want to get your response to kind of that debate, because that was the main debate that was going on in the Senate. And if this bill ends up getting to the House most likely next year, I imagine that's going to be part of the debate, too. Yeah. And I listen, I think that I think that people want to make sure that you protect the the individual who's just trying to give a little bit of money to the cause that you know, a cause in which they believe. But I think that, you know, people, you know, people talk about it as a first amendment, right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I, to an extent, I certainly, I certainly agree with that. I think that, you know, free speech and anonymity are two different things and having the right to spend your money, how you want to spend it is, uh, you know, is, is different from having the right to spend your money, how you spend it. And nobody know, you know, you know, why you're spending or who, who is spending it. So, um, you know, a friend of mine, a friend of mine told me who I think is probably in favor of limits. He said, uh, man, if I had more money, I'd have so much free speech. <laughs> yeah. I'd have free speech coming out. Never mind. I mean, but, but the, uh, you know, it, it just, uh, it's an interesting issue, but I think that, uh, I think that anonymity is certainly not part of the first amendment. Final question before I know you have to go to a leadership meeting. How do you think the governor has handled his first legislative session? Obviously, there's been some senators who believe he's been too heavy-handed on some issues. I've gotten the sense that um, many people in the Missouri House, especially on the Republican side, have been more complimentary of his approach. How has he done so far, and what do you think that he can do in these last few days to make sure some of the big-ticket bills get over the finish line? Yeah, I think that uh, I think that the governor, you know, when when before Governor Greitens got here and we had Governor Nixon, the criti- the criticism was always that we never saw him on the third floor, and you know he was never he'd never come talk to the members, he would never weigh in uh, during the legislative process, and then we got a new governor, and 
you know, the first big issue on which he got involved was the uh, the resolution to kill the pay raises for elected officials, and that was a resolution that the House passed and sent to the Senate. And I think that it's certainly fair to criticize, you know, the tactics that were used uh, in, in the uh, trying to kill that or trying to get that resolution passed that would stop the raises from taking effect. But I think that a lot of people, uh, you know, I, I appreciated the fact that the governor was willing to get involved uh, in the legislative process. I think that it would be hypocritical for me to have complained about uh, Governor Nixon not being involved in the legislative process and then complain that Governor Greitens is involved in the legislative process. So I'm glad that the governor has taken uh, taken uh, an interest in what we've done this session. And, you know, he's been – you know, I've had – more meetings with Governor Greitens this year than I had with Governor Nixon the first four years uh, I was in the legislature. Part of that may be uh, a function of just the position that I'm in regarding the budget now that I wasn't in when Governor Nixon was here. But I think part of that you know, was probably that Governor Greitens is more involved than Governor Nixon was. As far as what he can do in the last few days here, um, I, I really don't know. I, I think at this point, um, you know, the governor has the ability to uh, make deals with with uh, individual senators uh, far more than uh, you know any other legislator has. So I suppose that he could um, use his uh, ability to to do that in order to get some of his priority legislation passed, uh, whether it be helping him with an issue in their district or uh, or, or anything else. Uh, I think that it would probably probably be ill advised uh, if they were to you know launch additional attacks on on specific legislators. I don't think that'll be a way to get things done in the last week of session. So hopefully they don't do that. But I certainly think he could do a few things and, and have one-on-one conversations that, that could result in a better outcome this week. All right. Well, we just want to thank you for spending the probably the only amount of free time you're going to have this week uh, talking with me about the budget and the rest of the legislative session. Uh, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. And how would people follow you on Twitter? at Fitzpatrick M.O., Fitzpatrick Mo. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long.